morning, everybody. As you can see, we're continuing on in our uh, Gospel Foundations series this morning. And, uh, and as the video show, we're going to be covering Jacob and Esau. Um, and many of you can probably relate to some of the, the tensions between Jacob and Esau. If you ever had a sibling, you probably learned how to push all their buttons. Anybody relate to what I'm saying? Or if you have children, you see that your children learn how to push each other's buttons quite well. Um, I've told this story before, but when I was, I don't know, maybe 11 or 12, my little brother was five or six, I knew exactly how to get what I wanted uh, from, from my little brother, Dustin. I, uh, I, would, I would go to him and I'd say, hey, Dustin, can I have a bite of, you know, whatever it is that you're eating? And Dustin was super generous, really kind, but he had some requirements, right? It's like, okay, yeah, you can have a bite, just, just a small bite. And so then I'd say, okay, sure. I would proceed to take a massive bite of whatever he had, and he would say, Derek, what did you do? And I'd say, oh, I'm sorry, you wanted me to take a small bite, small bite. So then I would go and take a small bite, and Dustin would say, okay, okay. He's totally fine with it after that, as long as I took the small, I knew that as long as I took the small bite last, I got to have whatever it was that I wanted. And, uh, and you know, I knew how to pr- press my, uh, my older brother's buttons as well. I think I was just the button presser in general when I was younger, um, not the mature man that you see before you today. But... All of us can kind of relate to this. And unfortunately, in the history of God's people, even the greatest of God's people, a small bite of food or a big bite of food is not the worst thing that's been stolen. And we'll see that uh, today with Jacob and Esau. So um, if you want to go ahead and turn with me to Genesis 25. Genesis 25 will begin in verse 21. And this, of course, is going to recount the, the conflict or the beginnings of the conflict between Jacob and Esau. And so up to this point, uh, Isaac has taken a wife, Rebecca, and she has been barren. And so we pick up where where Isaac is then praying for his wife to conceive a child. So uh, Genesis 25, verse 21. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer and Rebecca, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? And so she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two people from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Not a big deal, right? What's going on with this pregnancy? Oh, not much, Rebecca. Just two nations are in your womb, struggling within you. Uh, Maybe some of you who uh, are mothers can relate to this. I know my wife can. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out all red and his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau, which means red. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob, which means heel grasper or deceiver. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom, which also means red. It's a nation that came from, from Esau. Jacob said, okay, sell me your birthright. Esau said, Well, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Maybe a little dramatic. Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him 
and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus, Esau despised his birthright. We're going to fast forward a little bit, read a couple more verses, but after this time, uh, Jacob uh, or uh, uh, Isaac was going to bless Esau. Um, so he called Esau in without calling Jacob in, said, hey, go, go out, hunt for me, cook my favorite meal, and come back, I'll eat it and bless you. Rebecca hears, she comes up with a scheme to, uh, to essentially put Jacob in, his, in Esau's place to cook the meal, to disguise him as Esau. And so Jacob goes in with the meal, has some interactions with his father who's quite skeptical. He can't see, but he can hear that the voice doesn't sound the same, and he can, uh, he's surprised at how quickly Jacob came back. So verse 26 of chapter 27, Then his father Isaac said to him, Come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him. And go down after, after Jacob leaves, Isaac come, or Esau comes in almost right away, and he realizes that his birthright or his blessing has been taken out from under him. So he leaves his father's presence in verse 41 of chapter 27. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. All right, on that cheery verse, let's go ahead and pray and kick it off for this morning. Father, we thank you that you do not hide the faults and the blemishes of those people in your word who are are supposed to be those of the greatest faith, the people who you called and you appointed and you chose to carry out the the line of redemption, Lord, that you show their weaknesses on full display, Lord, and that that encourages us, Lord, that you, um, you don't need us to fill the role of perfection. You need us to be willing and to step out in faith. And Lord, we thank you that your mercy is abundant this morning, God, that you cover over, you wash over our sins, and you continue sanctifying us. And so, God, we pray as we, as we look at this story today and the lessons we can learn from it, that ultimately we would look to Christ, who was that one only perfect and spotless one who fulfilled righteousness, Lord. So we cast ourselves on him today and ask that we would grow in admiration and adoration of him today. In Jesus' name, amen. So up, up to this point in Genesis... We've been seeing how God has set up the most, uh, the most prominent figures and characters as those who have some of the most messed up stories and histories, right? You have Adam and Eve who are given perfection in the garden, everything they need, perfect fellowship with God. And just a chapter later, we don't know exactly how long it actually was, but a chapter later, they are selling all of that to go after the one tree that God told them, told them not to. Fast forward to Abraham and Abraham twice pawns off his wife as his sister so that he doesn't get killed. Even though, even though he initially acted in faith and God called him from the land that he, that he was from and into a land that he didn't know, he, he followed God in faith and he knew that God was going to give him a son and yet Abraham still tried to take things into his own hand and manipulate the situation. Sarah said, hey, we're not really going to have a son. Just take my handmaid and let's make it happen ourselves. So you see that that all these characters are being set up as very human, very flawed, but very, very much desiring to follow God in faith and, and wrestling with and working out what does it look like to actually have faith in God and, and not to mix in our own desires and our own wills with that faith. And so we also see all the while that God is sovereignly directing and orchestrating everything, all of the evils, all of the good, toward his ultimate plan of redemption and so full of mercy. 
this story is no different. We see a, a family that has a lot of dysfunction. Probably some of you in this room come from a family that had a lot of dysfunction in it. And I'm looking at you, Neaters, and I'm just kidding. You guys are amazing. But I mean, we know people who have a lot of dysfunction, deception and manipulation and all of that stuff going on behind the scenes. And, um, and we see that every single one of these characters has a different response to, to uh, the, the promise, the word of the Lord, the responsibility that he gives to them. And none of them are to be seen as the one that we should emulate. All four characters, Esau, Isaac, Jacob, Rebecca, respond differently when God gives them this promise. First, you have Esau. Esau is set up very quickly as a self-centered young, young man. We don't know exactly how old he is at this point. But it, it tells us he's a, he's a skillful hunter. That's great. But he wants to be out. He wants to be out doing his own thing. It shows us that he, uh, he married two women that his parents didn't approve of. He wasn't, he wasn't too concerned with, uh, with bringing honor to his family. He wanted what he wanted. And, and then we see this story where literally... Jacob offers him a bowl of soup for his birthright, and almost without thinking. I mean, he says, he says, sell me your birthright. And Esau says, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Right? A little bit of drama king there. He's, he's, he's showing that he doesn't care for his birthright, but then when the blessing is taken by Jacob later, he's very angry. So what's going on there? The birthright and the blessing are probably related. They're probably similar, but they're a little bit different as well. The birthright, yes, it comes with all the, all the land, all the flocks and herds and all the wealth, but it also comes with the responsibility of leading, the responsibility of owning the tribe and serving the tribe and, and laying your life down, becoming the head of that household. And so, essentially, Esau's saying, I want the blessing, but I don't want the responsibility. I don't want to embrace what God's put before me. But he wants that blessing. He wants to still take what he can get from the family. And so he becomes very upset when that doesn't happen. Next, you have Esau. Or, I'm sorry, uh, Isaac. And Isaac's response, Isaac is very stubborn. Isaac uh, probably was the only other person in this story, along with Rebecca, who knew of the promise that God gave. She probably shared it with him, perhaps not with uh, her younger sons. And so Isaac is not necessarily opposed to the will of God, but he's definitely not submitting or surrendering to it too well either. So, you know, you, you see that they both have their favorites, their favorite children, okay? And, uh, you know, we won't ask parents to raise their hand, but we know that that's a temptation, right? Of like, oh, yeah, this one's kind of annoying me today, right? But Isaac and, and uh, Rebecca had extreme favorites. It wasn't just a day-to-day thing. They, they had really taken sides within their family. And, and the reason that, that Isaac loved Esau is because he ate of his game. What does that mean? He cooked some really good food for his father, right? I mean, Matt and I are pretty good friends, you know, but we get into it sometimes. But last weekend, Matt cooked probably the best ribs I've ever had in my life. And I ate too many of them uh, so that later in the evening I was having problems. We'll just leave it there. Uh, but I probably would do it again because they were amazing ribs. His, his, when I eat of Matt's game, don't think too hard about that phrase, it, is, it's, you know, it covers over a multitude of sins. And probably the similar thing is happening for Isaac right now. Like, he's eating, you know, Esau's fa- you know, his favorite food. Esau is a man's man. He's out there hunting. For some reason, Isaac has gravita- gravitated toward Esau. And this is how we know that Isaac was stubborn. When the time for the blessing came, Isaac was supposed to call in both Esau and Jacob. That's, that's kind of the custom of the day to give a blessing to each. 
but he actually only calls in uh, Esau. And so we, we see Rebecca standing by the door and, and being deceptive and, um, and all that. We see her as the deceiver, but Isaac himself is being kind of stubborn. He, you know, maybe, maybe he's not rejecting God's will, but he's not trying too hard to make it happen either. Then you have Jacob. Jacob is the one who manipulates to get what he wants. Instead of trusting God to provide for him, trusting God to give him what he needs later in his life, as soon as he sees that there's a leverage point, as soon as he sees that there's something he can get out of it and, and twist the situation to match his own needs and his own desires, he takes that opportunity. He sees that, that Esau desires the stew. He, he says, okay, well, sell me your birthright. I mean, what kind of offer is that, right? But he knew his brother was a little bit dramatic, so he decided to take what he needed from that circumstance. And later, Jacob reaps what he sows, and we'll get to that in a little bit. And lastly, you have Rebecca. Rebecca is the deceiver. Rebecca is the one who, yes, she heard the word of the Lord. Of anyone, she should have been the one to know, God will accomplish what he told me. And, and he'd already done some of it, right? So there's, there's, there's this war going on inside of her, and he says, two nations are in your womb, and then she births twins. So she knows that God has spoken truly to her, but she doesn't know what it means to live in faith and trust versus to manipulate the situation. And probably she had a family history, as we see from her brother's actions later in the story, of being manipulative and deceptive. So Rebecca was, was wrestling with what it meant to trust God in this circumstance. And instead of fully surrendering the outcome to him, she decides she needs to deceive. She needs to work things to her own advantage. She needs to help God out and make sure that it happens. All four of these are painted as very negative responses to hearing God's promise, to hearing God's word, to hearing his will. Esau Esau ends up living in bitterness for years to come. Jacob ends up having to leave and never return. Rebecca uh, doesn't ever see her son again, most likely. And what we see in this story is that, that God cares about the responses that we have when he gives us a word, when he gives us a promise. He, it matters to him how we respond to it. They caused heartache and, and sadness for themselves for years to come that didn't need to exist if they had just trusted God. I remember when I was back in California, about maybe eight years ago now, I was in a relationship and I felt very clearly that the Lord had said, you need to take a step back from this relationship. And I took probably a couple days and just was, was walk, you know, took walks and was praying and crying and, and wrestling with God over what it meant to trust him and to have faith and to give up this thing that was very precious to me. And so finally, I came to kind of surrender. I came to a point where I, I kind of let go of the thing that he was asking me to give up. And I, I obeyed him well for about two weeks. And then one day I woke up and I was like, I think two weeks has been long enough. I think, I've, I think I've done enough to show God that I trust him. And yeah, maybe he meant, you know, for a time, give it up. And I can decide when that time is, of course. I, I'm going to twist the situation, twist his word to get what I want from it. And in the next month or month and a half, because I, uh, I reached out, texted this person, then I started hanging out with this person. Over the next month, month and a half, my, I, I probably had the, the biggest moral failures of my life. And it, it led to a need for a reconciliation, a restitution, restoration with my church, you know, a confession, um, things that could have been avoided if I had just actually listened to God and actually surrendered in the things that he had asked me to do. And we see that these people all have to live with the consequences 
of, of their actions, of their choices. Jacob ends up reaping what he sows, right? He goes and Laban, his uncle, is the master deceiver, right? The master manipulator. On Jacob's wedding night, when he's supposed to marry Rachel, eh, Laban kind of slips Leah in there, takes Rachel out. I'm not sure how he accomplished that. I don't know if Jacob was just so drunk or it was too dark or what was going on, but somehow Laban got the person in there that he wanted. And, and Jacob then had to deal with the conflict of that as well because he reaped what he sowed. I think this passage has, has two kind of major, major exhortations for us. It's, it's, it's a great warning for us, and it also serves as a great comfort for us. Because maybe you are in that place where you are wrestling with what to do with a word that God has spoken, or something written in this word, something you know is right, something he's promised. It could be a hard thing. It could be a good thing that you're waiting for. And you're wrestling with what does it look like to truly have faith in God in this circumstance? What does it mean to not be like Esau, who is apathetic, who despised it, who rejected it, who could care less? Not like Isaac, who's stubborn, who's kind of submitting, but also kind of doing his own thing. We want to care about it. We want to have passion for what the Lord speaks, but we also don't want to go so far as to manipulate circumstances to try and make it happen of our own will because those carry consequences. And maybe you're in that place wrestling with what to do right now. And my exhortation to you is ask, what does faithfulness actually look like? What does faith in God, where I trust him, I believe him for it, but I don't take matters into my own hands to make everything happen? But this passage is also a great comfort for us because we see that God, in spite of all of the terrible family dynamics, the deception, the manipulation, the apathy, the stubbornness, all of the the blemishes going on, that God still sovereignly works all the good and all the evil, all, all the great things, all the messed up dynamics, works them toward redemption, works them toward his will. And maybe you're in a place today where you've already gone against God's will. You've already done the thing that, that you shouldn't have done. And, and, and you're sitting in the shame and the guilt of that. And not only for the story of redemption did God work all things for good, but even in this, in this family, God eventually brings Jacob and Esau around to reconciliation. He, he meets them in their own ways. He meets Jacob in a, a later passage, and Jacob truly accepts him as his God. He puts their family back on the right track, and he can do the same for you. He can He can restore and redeem. His mercy is big enough to cover those things. This story, uh, I was reading the New Bible commentary on on this passage, and, and this is what it says. Here, as often in Genesis, this new step forward in the history of salvation is set against the backdrop of unscrupulous behavior by the patriarchs involved. Once again, it is God's mercy, not human merit, that is the ultimate hope of redemption. Once again, it is God's mercy, not human merit, that is the ultimate hope of redemption. And this is what we rest in today. That no matter what I've done, no matter how much I've messed it up, no matter how much I haven't trusted God in the past, I I can repent, get back on track, and rest in his mercy, his sufficiency, his ability to correct the situation. doesn't mean I won't have the natural consequences of my choices and my actions. I want to avoid those by making the right decision in the first place. But sometimes we don't. We, we have those consequences follow us for a while. Even to this day, I have memories of those stupid decisions I made, and it, and it still brings heartache to me. 
but I rest in the mercy of God, that he is directing my life and has directed and has blessed me so graciously and mercifully now with what I have. And ultimately, we see that none of the stories we're looking at in Genesis rest on human merit. None of them rest on the goodness of the characters involved, and praise God that they don't because there probably wouldn't have been in Israel, right? But God, even here, throughout Genesis, is putting a pattern that he wants us to recognize. And the video talked about it a little bit already. There's a pattern in Genesis of the older son messing it up and the younger son receiving the inheritance, receiving the blessing. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean in Genesis that the younger son was always great, but God is putting this pattern of the olding, uh, oldest son rebelling and losing the inheritance and the younger son receiving the inheritance. You think of, of Cain and Abel. Cain was jealous of Abel and murdered him because his, his sacrifice wasn't as acceptable as Abel's sacrifice. And so Cain loses the inheritance. He loses the line of redemption, and it's ultimately through Seth that the, that the line of redemption comes. Then you go to Abraham and Sarah, and they try and manipulate the situation like we talked about before. Ishmael comes through Hagar, but it's actually Isaac who's the son of promise, the second born. Jacob and Esau, of course, we see already. Esau is, is not the one who would receive the inheritance Jacob is the one who received the inheritance in the line of redemption. And Jacob's sons, his first three sons, mess it up, and it's the fourth son through whom the, the redemption comes. And, and this is showing us a pattern, ultimately, of Israel and Jesus. That the first, the first group, referred to as the son, God's son in Scripture, messes it up. They rebel. They don't bear the fruit that God is hoping for. And ultimately, we look forward to that second son, that one who was faithful, who did carry out everything that he was supposed to. Jacob, when he had the opportunity, he manipulated to get what he wanted. He, he took the opportunity to use the leverage he had to twist things into his own favor, and he took the inheritance by the wrong person at the wrong time, the wrong means. He didn't wait for God to provide what he needed. But we see Jesus come up against a similar temptation when Jesus goes into the wilderness, is tempted for 40 days and, and, and fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, at his weakest point, the enemy comes to him and the last temptation, the enemy says, if you'll just bow to me, I will give you the nations as your inheritance. This was truly Jesus' inheritance. It was truly something he deserved. It was truly something God had promised to him. Look at Psalm 2. Ask of me and I will give the nations as your inheritance. But Jesus knew it was the wrong time the wrong means, and the wrong giver. The temptation for Jesus would have been to avoid the cross, to avoid the suffering that he would have had to go through, to allow, to, to allow his, his fleshly temptation to take over. And I don't know what your theology is, but I do believe that Jesus truly experienced temptation because it was a, a good desire for the nations for him to have. And yet he chose, no, I'm going to wait for the right giver, the right time, the right means, which is through the cross. We see in Philippians 2, that then God highly exalted him, gave him the name that's above every other name. We see in this passage, ultimately, that it points to the only faithful one. It points to the only one who received his inheritance the right way, and he did it by suffering and dying. And then as the video shared, he then turns around and gives that inheritance to us who don't deserve it. He turns around and, and blesses his children, his people who were slaves, but now are embraced as sons. I want to go ahead and invite the worship team up as we begin to close. I just want to ask you today, 
where you're at in this spectrum of what we've been talking about. Maybe there is something you've been waiting on that you know that God has promised it or he's asked you to surrender. It could be multiple different things in our lives. And you're wrestling with what does faith look like. And I just exhort you today, look for that middle path. Caring and, and, and uh, being committed to what God speaks, but not twisting things and manipulating to try and make things work out in the end for yourself. Wait on the Lord. Trust in the Lord that he will bring it about by his own way and his own means at the right time. Maybe you're in the seat where you've already made the foolish decision and you need to rest in God's mercy that he's going to work all things for your good, that he's going to bring redemption and mercy and forgiveness in your life and wash you clean of the shame that you might feel. And ultimately for all of us, that we would recognize that Jesus is the one that this story has been pointing to the whole time. In every one of these stories, it's Jesus that we look to for our, for our rest. And here's the thing about Jesus. It's not just that we cast ourselves on him and then lay back in our own sinfulness. We cast ourselves on him knowing that as he fills us with his spirit, as he fills us with himself, then he does enable us to walk in the faithfulness in which he walked. It's not just that we, we trust in him and say, thanks for the free pass. We trust in him and we embrace his grace in our life to say, yes, I can walk faithfully. Yes, I can obey uh, God's promises in my life. So let's go ahead and stand as we head into the last couple songs of worship and pray together. Father, we thank you for, um, for your word. We thank you for the graciousness of Christ. We thank you for the faithfulness of Christ. God, I pray for those who are wrestling through decisions right now, wrestling through what it means to trust you, that you would enable them, Lord, to walk as Jesus would have walked. Father, I pray for those who are uh, wrestling with, with regrets of the past, of, of sin, of shame, of responding wrongly to the things you've spoken, Lord. I pray that you would wash them today, Lord. As they look to Jesus, as they see his sufficiency, his mercy, they would cast themselves on him and receive that washing and cleansing today. Father, I pray that, uh, that we would, throughout this series, continue to grow in our understanding of how you have put Christ, the pattern of what you would do ultimately in Christ, all throughout this book, Lord. And we ask that, uh, that as your people, we would embrace the filling grace and empowering of the Holy Spirit in our lives, Lord, to, to image Christ correctly in the world, Lord, to walk in the faithfulness that he walked in, not relying on our own strength, not relying on our own schemes, but Lord, trusting in you the way that Christ did. So we, we ask, Lord, as we go into these last couple songs of worship, that you'd fill our hearts with praise, that you would lift our eyes to Christ, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. In Jesus' name.